everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Water Woman podcast. My name is Jill and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. And today I'm joined by Claire. Hi, Claire. How are you doing? Hi, Jill. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for joining me. I'm so excited to have you here. Do you want to start out and tell us a little brief a bit about who you are? Sure. I am a marine mammal veterinarian and um, I've, I've worn some different hats over my career, um, but I'm, I'm at an exciting sort of new crossroads in my life where I've just uh, recently launched my own company. Um, and so now that's kind of cool. I can say that I'm also a, a founder and CEO. That's awesome. So what is your new company? Well, the new company is called Sea Change Health. And um, the, you know, the thought is uh, certainly for, for myself as a veterinarian, you know, I'm, I'm very focused on um, health in general. And um, often the, the primary focus is, is on the health of um, our patients and, and the health of animals. But it's really so clear that we're all connected and that to, to really maximize how we understand what health is and and how we we do our jobs the best that we can. I think that we need to take into account that that whole holistic picture of of what it means to be healthy. Um, And so so if for the company, I think about it in um, in kind of three different pieces. Um, One, there's the the marine mammal health piece. And and so, uh, you know, I really love to use my expertise um, working with marine mammals to help give support to to people that may be um, uh, dealing with challenging cases or um, just anything to provide the best quality care to any marine mammal that is in need. And then um, then there's also a, a human health part of it, um, and and we can definitely uh, you know dive into this deeper. But as I've kind of um, as I've kind of work through my own health issues, um, I've realized that, uh, that taking a look at our own health, um, as, as people that have, have really committed our lives to, to improving the health of others, um, is, is really critical. And, and so a piece of that is supporting, um, people who are, uh, healthcare providers into, to maximizing their own health. Um, and then looking holistically at, at uh, the bigger picture of the environment and ocean health and conservation, I, I want to, to really maximize how effective uh, we are at, um, at really pursuing marine mammal conservation projects. And, um, and so I think that the, the doors are really wide open and there's, that there's a lot of need in a lot of different places. And and so it, it feels really, uh, it's a little bit scary to say, okay, I'm going to go off in my own direction. But, um, but I think that those kinds of big risks are, are, you know, hopefully what is needed to, to try something new. Yeah, that's awesome. It's very, it's going to sound like an oxymoron because it's a very like broad spectrum thing you're looking at, but at the same time, it's so very direct, like it's kind of got a direct goal. So yeah. that's kind of cool. Yeah, I I like that. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a person that really likes variety. Um, and so I like to kind of have have my hands in in a bunch of different projects. And, and but two, I, I really want to know that the impact that I'm making is tangible. Um, and, and so when I, you know, when I think about what, 
um, has really helped me the most and what I need, a lot of times it's really that support from other people. Um, and, you know, we definitely are not in, uh, in our careers and our jobs and our lives alone. And the support for me has come from people with expertise in a whole bunch of different areas. And, and so I, I think what sort of guides me is, okay, do I have some expertise that I can provide that can, can help somebody, um, help somebody really maximize and be the best that they can be. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you said that and we'll definitely dive deeper into that. But before we do, I uh, let's talk about you being a Marine mammal vet, because that is so cool. First of all, like, <laughs> Thank wow. And it's a very niche kind of career. So how did you get into that? It, it is, you know, it is definitely a, a specialized career. Um, and I think I, you know, I'm similar to a lot of veterinarians that I know in, in that I, uh, you know, from when I was very little, I knew that I um, was, that I loved animals, that I was fascinated by science. Um, and, and that being a veterinarian was, you know, kind of a, a, a goal from um, early on. Um, but I, I never knew, I never really had an idea that you could, um, that you could work in conservation or that you could work with wildlife that, that, um, wasn't in my view of, of what a veterinarian did. Um, and so as I learned more, more and more about it in, you know, in college and, and then in veterinary school, um, I went to, to veterinary school at Virginia Tech and, um, and they were really supportive of me kind of going off and trying different things um, because they, they didn't have a, a, you know, a whole lot of marine mammal uh, programs in, in Virginia, Virginia Tech, understandably. Um, and, <laughs> but, um, uh, but they helped me kind of go out and get my experiences in, in other places like, um, you know, doing research in, uh, uh, in the Caribbean or, um, uh, working with wildlife in Chile. And, uh, and so I, I knew, you know, I, I thought in my mind that I was, uh, going down the, the track more of, um, working with, um, with land animals and, and, uh, like a, a zoo residency, that kind of a thing. And, and so I worked, um, you know, I, I worked really hard through vet school and, um, and I, I did an internship working with, um, uh, with small animals, with dogs and cats, um, in San Diego. And, um, and I applied for, uh, for zoo residencies and, and I was rejected from all of them. <laughs> and, um, and th that was a point, you know, where I was thinking, okay, what's next? This was kind of like my goal that I had been going after for a long time. And, um, and, the, the National Marine Mammal Foundation um, that works with the, the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program, um, and as well as SeaWorld San Diego, had started a, um, a joint um, internship fellowship. And, uh, and so I applied for that, and I got that. And that was, uh, that was an amazing year um, of just uh, getting really a, a lot of great hands-on um, medical training from, uh, from a lot of uh, really big experts in the field. Um, and, and I went on to, uh, 
to, to do work with the, the National Marine Mammal Foundation. Um, I moved up to the Bay Area and started working with the Marine Mammal Center and with, um, with NOAA Fisheries, um, which is the government agency um, in the U.S. that's responsible for overseeing um, much of the, the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Um, so, yeah. uh, so understanding more about, um, uh, you know, many of the, the marine mammals in, in U.S. waters. And for me during, uh, during that part of my career, I was, uh, I was focused on things like um, unusual mortality events. So if there are uh, die-offs of a, of a whole lot of, um, of marine mammals at a time, um, there are, uh, you know, groups of responders and, um, and scientists that, that get together and try to understand um, what's causing those die-offs. And, and so that was a really, that was a really interesting piece of the career as well. Um, and, and so then um, after, so I was, uh, I was working with, with both the Marine Mammal Center and, and uh, NOAA Fisheries. And then I transitioned into um, my most recent position um, where I was directing the, the Hawaiian Monk Sail Conservation Program um, with the Marine Mammal Center, running a hospital in Hawaii dedicated to conserving the, the Hawaiian Monk Seal. And, um, and, and that was my, my most recent position. And, and then, um, you know, my, uh, my priorities with, with my family and with my own health, um, you know, were, it was the right time to, to transition and, and start my own thing. Um, and so it's been, you know, I, I always think that kind of, I look back every five years and I think, wow, how did I get here? <laughs> I would have never, never expected um, the, the path to go, you know, in this direction. And I think I must be at that, you know, five-year point where now looking out into the future, it's like, wow, what is the next five years going to bring? But I think that's a really exciting part of it, even though it's, yeah. you know, definitely scary at times. <laughs> <laughs> I have to try and remind myself that like, I shouldn't be stressed saying anything could happen. I should be excited saying like, anything can happen because it's just so wide open. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I have to say that I can't even imagine what it must be like to graduate and kind of be thinking about next steps in the middle of a pandemic. It has to be so bizarre and unsettling and unsure. And like, oh just gosh. to name that. <laughs> I love that you brought up the outlook of uh, conservation when you were first, like you weren't sure about conservation or didn't know you could look at a conservation standpoint as a vet because I feel like a vet is for a lot of little kids is kind of their like go-to job when you like animals like I know myself when I was younger people would ask me what I wanted to be and I would always say a vet because I loved animals and it just made sense Absolutely. and then as I got older I was like I don't want to be a vet like it's just I don't I don't want to that's just not who I wanted to be but I think it's so cool to look at it as a different way than you're not just like a vet, you're a vet focusing on conservation and it can have that outlook on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's, I think that that's a process that, um, that a lot of people go through and because it's so true, like that's, that's feedback that I hear all the time where people will, will either say, Oh, I so wanted to be a vet when I was little, or, Oh, I wanted to be a Marine biologist when I was little, you know, <laughs> those two sort of like quintessential jobs. And, and, and then, you know, they said, Oh, but then I realized I hate blood or I didn't want to see animals suffer or, you know, something like that. And, and, and so thinking about like, what is it about that, um, 
the 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 sort of pristine thought of it um, that then when people realize more what they um, what they really like and value and, and the things that they they don't want to do day to day which are totally valid and and you know if you if you don't like the sight of blood then um, then working with with animals that are sick is is definitely going to be challenging um, you know but I think that that that's one of the um, the, the coolest things to to see in thinking about like all of the different options that there are out there is that I'm still you know I'll still meet people that are doing something that is is just a really unique spin on um, on on a, a more common um, uh, job or career and uh and they've really made it work and have made it turn into exactly exactly what their passion is and and that is i think that's super cool to see to see that in action and it's like thinking back to vets it's kind of when you think of vets automatically you think of like taking your dog or your cat or like your bunny or like a household pet to the vet but you're doing something that's completely like not i don't want to say opposite of that but just like that it's so different. Like these aren't anybody's pets. These are huge mammals. (laughs) Absolutely. And, and that is really, you know, that really um, changes the way that, uh, that I think um, about medicine and that I think about, um, you know, just the, the different things that I, that I do for my job. If I'm, if I'm helping an animal, I mean, first of all, you know, working with, um, with wild animals and, and certainly animals that are bigger than, you know, than we are, um, just thinking about the different, um, ways that we, the different options that we have to treat them, um, is, uh, is something that we have to constantly be thinking about. And, you know, so for instance, one of my, um, one of my research projects was uh, developing um, a new way to treat um, eye ulcers. Um, so sometimes, you know, if we, I don't know about you, but even if I get like dust in my eye, my eye starts to water really. <laughs> it's like, I can't even watch like Visine oh, yeah. commercials or anything, but, but, you know, marine mammals have these really big kind of protruding um, eyeballs and they're, they're very prone to getting scratches on, on the cornea, which is the surface of the eye. And, um, and if you think about an, a wild animal that's sick, they're not going to sit still for, for you to, to give them eye drops um, multiple times a day. They're like, yeah. I don't think so. And it's, you know, it's stressful for them. And then for, for the people um, handling the animals, it can be dangerous as well because they are wild animals and they can bite and they can, uh, they can really hurt you. And so, we so we needed to think about okay what is what's a different way um, that we can minimize that and um, and that was that was something where I ended up um, borrowing a gel from human medicine um, and it's this gel that's a, it's called a thermodynamic gel and so it acts sort of the opposite of what you would expect um, a, a gel to to do so when it's um, at a colder temperature it's a liquid. And then when it um, reaches body temperature, then it turns into a gel. And so um, if you, you can mix it with things like antibiotics, and then when you inject it, um, it, is, it stays where you inject it, and it keeps the drugs there for an extended period of time. And, and it's used in, in human medicine for you know, cardiovascular surgery and, and um, a couple of different things. And, but I found that if we injected a small amount, um, in the tissues just around the eye, that then it acted like 
basically the effect of giving eye drops um, throughout almost over a week. And, and it ended up that these animals that had these pretty superficial scratches on their eyes, um, that that healed uh, with just a single injection, um, really as effectively and as safely as giving them, you know, either eye drops or, or oral medications. And so it's, it's those kinds of things, you know, working with, uh, with wild animals and working with animals where um, you have to take those extra steps to kind of um, be innovative about how do we reduce stress as much as possible? How do we maximize the, the, um, the benefit that we're, we're giving with any time that we interact with that animal? Um, because we want to do it as, as little as possible, obviously, when they're not feeling well. Yeah. The fact that you can do something like that is absolutely unreal. That is so cool. <laughs> well, thank you. I know. It's so much fun. <laughs> it really is. And talking about that actually is a great segue to what I wanted to bring up next because I actually found you by your TED Talk. I was writing my own TED Talk awesome. and I wanted some um, inspiration. So I was listening to a bunch of different TED Talks from women in conservation specifically and I found yours and it was so cool and it taught me so much that is that is so awesome to hear that is <laughs> just to hear that that you know you're impacted by it and because uh, that's I think right like you know the the, the whole point of yeah. wanting to to share that story yeah absolutely mm-hmm. and you talked a lot about zoonosis in your TED talk mm-hmm yeah. So can you tell us a bit about what zoonosis is and then about the uh, term that you coined based off of that? Absolutely. Um, so I think as, uh, you know, when, if you think of a disease like rabies, um, rabies is what's called a, a zoonosis or a zoonotic disease. Um, and and that means that um, that if an animal that has rabies bites a human, that they can transfer the disease to them. And but there's a there's a common misconception that um, a zoonosis just means that an animal can infect a human, but a zoonosis actually goes both ways. So humans um, can catch diseases from animals, but animals can also catch diseases from humans, and. Um, and I think that that's an important part of the equation, particularly, you know, in, in my work as a veterinarian, because we, we have to be on the lookout um, for diseases that could really massively affect um, humans and public health, which we're right in the middle of that right now with the, <laughs> with the coronavirus pandemic, no better illustration, um, right, than, than from, um, and the majority of these new emerging diseases um, are zoonotic and are, are, you know, do come from animals. And so it's, it's it's something that's, that's critical for us to, to, to be aware of. Um, But for animal health, we have to recognize that there are also diseases that, uh, that human, that humans can give to animals. And, you know, influenza um, is a good example of that. Um, There are, um, you know, there are cases where, um, avian influenza um, that, that originates in birds can cause these massive die-offs in, in seal populations. And seals have been documented to transmit um, uh, influenza to humans and cause, you know, conjunctivitis and, and um, you know, some other disease. But what, what I found really interesting was that elephant seals 
um, were found, you know, they, they were, uh, they were sampled. So swabs were stuck up their nose, totally rude, um, of elephant seals sleep, just sleeping, on, <laughs> sleeping on the beach in, uh, in California. And they found that the, the, um, the H1N1, um, pandemic, which had been circulating in humans, um, the year before was then detected in elephant seals the year after. And, and so though, so diseases can definitely be spread both ways. And that to me got me, got me thinking, you know, as I was, I was thinking about, um, uh, developing my Ted talk, um, and I was, uh, I was lucky to be selected as a Ted fellow. Um, and so they, uh, they, they spend a a whole lot of time mentoring you on kind of developing the the talk and and all of that, which was just an amazing process. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, the, the, the concept of, zo- of zoonoses and zoonotic diseases goes both ways. And so does knowledge and what we know about animals, because we, we learn from animals um, and we also can apply the things that we understand about us as humans and apply that to help animals. Um, and so, so I coined a term for that, um, zoognosis, which sounds t- totally dorky, but, um, <laughs> no, I love it, <laughs> but it takes the, um, the Greek root, um, gnosis for knowledge, um, and then zoo for, for all animal life, including us. And, um, and so that, that zoognosis is the knowledge spread between humans and animals. And I think, you know, again, as a veterinarian, it makes a lot of sense to think of examples, um, from, from medicine, um, particularly when we think of like a from a one health perspective of how the, the how humans and animals and the environment are all connected, um, but I think we can also go outside of medicine and and um, look at how, for instance, engineering um, you know can really impact um, uh, wildlife. Like um, if you think about wildlife corridors, um, so there are. Uh, folks that have engineered um, ways for wildlife to cross over, say, busy highways, um, because these these highways have fragmented their habitats. And so then these populations get separated and, and they're not able to, you know, fulfill how they migrate or their, their natural behaviors. Um, and, and of course, you know, there's the argument that we... Uh, Perhaps if we had not degraded the the ecosystem um, in the first place, we wouldn't need to use our <laughs> engineering skills to to build back these uh, these wildlife corridors. But you know, I think that that one of the key pieces when we think about conservation or and just you know the the health of our our planet is that we as humans have had a massive impact on every part of this entire world, and and I think that that it's really our responsibility to use the the innovations and the the tools that we've developed to to put back into conservation and into strategies to uh to help the world heal um and to help the natural world kind of get back into equilibrium um and so the so the wildlife corridors are, are an example of how we can take that knowledge that we've developed from um, a place like engineering and apply it to help um, animals and and uh, and the environment as well. But that is so cool, and it makes a lot of sense to think about how like knowledge would go both ways and how we can learn from these animals quite a bit. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think, um, I think too, that when we're, you know, when we're thinking about solving all of these kind of big P problems that, that we encounter, um, whether it's, uh, you know, things like, um, sea level rise and climate change or, uh, coral bleaching or things where, um, these problems seem so massive that it, that it, it sort of just makes you want to kind of crawl into a hole and be, and, and, you know, just be like, what can we possibly do? I think in that aspect, you know, I mean, that's really common when we talk about conservation and just sort of how bleak something is. And, and it's hard to communicate that in a realistic way without causing people to just say, uh, to throw up their hands and say, oh, there's nothing we can do. Um, What's the point kind of thing? What's the point? Absolutely. A podcast I just recently recorded, we actually talked a lot about this, about how you want, like, as people who are into conservation or conservationists, you want to do all you can. And then you kind of look around and like, I'm looking at a printer right now and I'm thinking about my like digital footprint and like all this garbage around me. And it's just like, oh man, like I'm trying my best, but I still have all this stuff. And then you think about like the big corporations and you're like, well, what, like, what difference am I going to make? And it's just very like climate, climate anxiety kind of thing. Is totally real, is absolutely real. And, 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 and particularly for, for those people who are, you know, working the hardest to, uh, to really make changes and to, who are making, you know, significant changes in their own personal lives. But then just as you say, kind of look at the big picture and say, you know, how is this even a drop in the bucket? Um, And, but I think that, you know, when we, when we look for those types of answers, um, what makes the most sense to me is that we, I, I think, as a whole, have largely forgotten how to listen to the natural world, and and I think that there are, um, you know, there are communities, um, particularly indigenous communities, that um, have not forgotten and 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 rely on, uh, you know, what the natural world has to share to to guide the way that they live sustainably. And, but I think that for so, so many of the rest of us, um, you know, forgetting that, um, that animals are sentinels and that they are, you know, they are canaries in the coal mine and, and that, um, if we're in order to, to, to solve a problem that seems so big and so complex, I think that, um, that, that at least for me, um, you know, I have had to sort of sit back and say, I'm not going to be the one that saves the world. And, and actually that, that was like a particularly sort of, uh, seismic realization for me to be, because (laughs) I think that as, you know, particularly as like women that go into marine science or conservation or, you know, it's like, we're, we're like, okay, we're like the world needs saving and we are going to do it. And we're, (laughs) we're gonna, we're gonna get on that. And, but I think that, that, you know, simultaneously understanding how um, small we are and how sort of minimal our individual impact is and also how connected we are to everything else that I think that really what we need are people that are um, able to listen to what the natural world is saying and help that uh, sort of transition in in the best way. I, I think if we are 
going out with the goal of saying we're going to save the world, that that's really where the the kind of climate anxiety and everything else is going to come from. Um, when when really, and I think going back to the the supporters type thing, right? If we say we can't do this alone, and we need to listen for whatever whatever the supporters and everybody are telling us um, that we need to do. And for me, that's, you know, animals in the natural world and what they're sharing. And even just listening and learning to yourself, like peak at the pandemic, I was very hard on myself and was experiencing almost a lot of climate anxiety and dread, which you wouldn't think it would be related, but I don't know about you guys, but for a while there, we weren't allowed to bring like reusable bags into the grocery store. Like we had to use the plastic bags and I haven't mm-hmm. used a plastic bag in like, I don't even like five years at the very least. And so yeah. like having to carry those out, I was like, oh my God, like I'm awful. Like I'm, I'm a terrible person now. But oh. then having all this time off, I also got to like spend time in nature. Like I said, like I live in the country, so I've been very lucky where I can be outside a lot of the time and not have to worry about like social distancing and stuff because I have all the room I could need. And I also live on the water. So I'm like doubly lucky where I can like spend time in my happy place and kind of listen to nature and be like, Oh, like she's doing okay. Like I'm doing my best. And even little changes I'm making are something that I should be proud of. Absolutely. Yeah. And absolutely. And, and I think, um, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was talking to um, the group of veterinary students from um, from Tufts University, and you know, and and everybody was um, was on Zoom from their house, and um, you know, it was just a totally different picture from what it would have looked like um, if I was in person six months ago, right? And 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 everybody had been. Um, you know, losing their internships or uh, jobs had fallen through or, and they couldn't do their clinical rotations and, and, um, and all of, and, and of course the, the anxiety around that. And, and I think that it, it made me think of, um, uh, of a book by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal. Um, And he's a physician that, um, that talks a lot about, um, uh, about the process of, people dying and, and how that works. And of course that, that's something where, you know, during a pandemic, like, you know, we certainly don't need more anxiety around that, but it, but um, he talks about how there have been studies where um, when people are faced with their own mortality and if they're given, you know, a terminal diagnosis and um, then, then all of a sudden their horizons just shrink really rapidly and so before where they might have been saying, you know, oh, I, my goal is to, my far off goal decades away are, are, is to travel or to have this career or to do that. And within an instant that our mindset can shift and then all of a sudden it's just like, what is the most important thing to me? How, how can I find comfort or how can I be with the people who matter the most? And, and that's definitely been happening to me where, you know, before, particularly since I'm was just, you know, starting my company right as everything shut down. It was sort of like a big telescoping of, of okay, yep, we're good. like this is on hold. What's the most important? And but the but the cool thing about that is that when the um, if a diagnosis changes and and somebody all of a sudden the the illness isn't um, either isn't terminal or there's more time or 
um, anything where all of a sudden our horizons can open again. And we as humans, and, and you know, our mind is incredibly resilient. And, and so I've been trying to, you know, cut myself a little bit of slack because I am very telescoped right now. And it's, and, um, and it's sort of like, I have no idea what's going to happen in the next um, month or so, or who is going to be healthy or how, um, you know, how we're all going to get through this. And, um, but just knowing that, um, you know, nature and everything is, is continuing on its own, um, and that our horizons will be able to, to open up again slowly, um, is reassuring to me. Absolutely. We don't know when, but it's coming kind of thing. Yes. Yes. It will, it will shift. Now you mentioned earlier, learning something from these marine mammals in regards to our mental health. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I I think um, that you know, so working with marine mammals um, and as a veterinarian um, has made me think a lot about the the people that are um, providing care, and um, and there there's this uh, uh, there's this mythology around um, a wounded healer. Um, and, um, or in, in Greek mythology where, um, you know, oftentimes we have to remember that, that we're often drawn to healing, to try to sort of heal some kind of wound that we have and that it's, it's really impossible to, to completely heal that. Um, and so I, I, and, and that's kind of vague, but go, but, um, that many times people will get into either medicine or veterinary medicine, um, wanting to, to help people heal. Um, and, but what we're seeing as well is that there are incredibly high rates of, um, of suicide and of mental health challenges. And, um, much of that is the way that things are structured and, you know, um, not, not knowing, um, how to get the supports that, that people need. Um, and so that, that made me think about, um, myself as sort of this, a wounded healer, um, and, uh, as well as my colleagues too. And that when we are, you know, because I, I've definitely struggled with, um, with, with my own challenges with, you know, anxiety and depression in the past and, and, um, and I know that when I am, when I'm not at my best and when I'm struggling, that then I'm not able to provide this, you know, care and focus on healing marine mammals. And the same is true when, you know, if I look at, um, if I look at marine mammals and, and, you know, thinking about like, again, these unusual mortality events where um, oftentimes um, you'll, you'll see a whole bunch of marine mammals that will strand on shore all at once, like along the um, the Atlantic coast of the U.S. Um, several years ago, when you know more than fifteen hundred bottlenose dolphins um, mm. stranded along the coast, um, and and it ended up that that was primarily because of uh, of a viral illness, um, morbilli virus, which is is similar to measles in humans and canine distemper, and um, and that was, that was this really stark picture of just all of these animals that were all sick at the same time. And, 
And yes, it can be from something explosive like a virus, but there are also all of these these subtle ties like, um, you know, are there uh, contaminants that are playing a role that might be depressing the immune system a little bit and allowing um, something like a, a viral disease to come to come up? Are there um, pressures from, uh, you know, from being able to find food resources? There are all of these different ties that come into. So it's, it's not just the virus that then sets off this pandemic similarly to to coronavirus now right it's not just that's that's the the symptom that we see and um and if we looked at it and and believe me right now we're in a we're in a triage phase where um it is the the primary um goal is to um save lives and to keep people safe and to stop you know the pandemic from progressing yeah. And, and, and at the same time, and, and, you know, at a later point, um, looking into all of the different pieces that impacted um, uh, the ability for, for something like this to spread, um, I, that's critical when we're thinking about um, uh, marine mammal health. That's critical when we're thinking about human health. And I think with, with mental health as well, you know, if we anytime in medicine, whether it's with our, our mind or with our body, um, if we're at a, a crisis point, then it's triage and that's what we need. And we need to um, do everything we can to, to save an animal, to save a human. Um, and, but, but really, you, as, as a marine mammal, you don't want to see me as, as a veterinarian. You, <laughs> you want to avoid seeing me because if you see me, then that means that something's wrong. And, uh, and so we want, you know, so it's, it's amazing that healthcare workers um, for, for humans, for animals are there when we need them and they're in a crisis. And I think that it's just as important to, uh, to, to do the work um, to, to be able to prevent um, and find all of the different factors and stressors that go into um, creating these perfect storms. Um, because, because you ultimately, if I can be put out of a job because there are no more sick marine mammals, then, hey, that's a great goal to strive for. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's kind of like a bittersweet job where you love what you do because you're helping these animals, but you, you almost don't want to be in the position where you have to help them like you want them to just be fine of course exactly exactly and and that's why i you know i really i really like the the medicine part of it and i like um uh figuring out what's happening with a sick animal and being able to treat them and of course seeing that success and seeing them go back but i'm also drawn to uh towards more of that big picture um thinking and and if it puts me out of a job of treating individual animals um, because I'm, I'm making more progress with, um, you know, putting the, the preventative measures in place, then, um, then I'd be perfectly happy for that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've had your fair share of animals, but has there ever been one that like really stuck out and that you remember kind of like your, your favorite patient, if you will? <laughs> I, well, there are so many favorite patients and, um, and they're all, I mean, one of the things I love about working with marine mammals is that they, 
have all have really different personalities. They're across the board, you know, extremely intelligent. And, uh, and, and so it's just really cool to kind of watch their behavior. Um, One, one case that sticks out in my mind, um, I think is, is one of the most recent cases um, from when I worked with the the Hawaiian monk seal conservation program. And there was this, um, there was a Hawaiian monk seal um, named RH38. And she was a, a, she's a juvenile female and she was born and had grown up on the the island of Kauai. And, um, and all of a sudden she started to rapidly um, lose body weight and, and um, pretty immediately you could see her ribs and her spine and um, you could tell that something was really, um, that she was really sick. And, um, and, and so we were able to, uh, you know, with, with all of our collaborators uh, to fly her um, from Kauai over to the hospital on the big island. And, from the very beginning, she was, it was like being in an episode of house because it was like everything that could go wrong <laughs> could, had, had gone wrong with this animal. And she, um, she had, uh, eye ulcers, skin ulcers, pneumonia, kidney stones, kidney infection, liver infection, I'm trying to think what else, um, just everything. And, and it, it felt like every test that we sent away just gave us more and more questions instead of answers. And, oh um, and, you know, and, and I was thinking, my gosh, it's never lupus in house, but could it be lupus? And it was like, it's, and <laughs> <laughs> that's never, you know, no, it was not lupus, but we, but we had to think about that. And, and we were trying, and, and she was also, you know, dragging her, her rear flippers and, and she could feel them and, but she couldn't really move them that well. And, so we finally, um, we were able to, t- to take her to, uh, to get a CT scan, um, up at, um, at the human hospital, um, and which they loved. It was an Easter <laughs> Sunday and, and, <laughs> and they of course were excited to, to have a monk sale come in. Um, and because of those, you know, because of that, um, again, it was the zoognosis, right? The advanced imaging that is used for humans um, was able to, to share this knowledge with us that we were able to pinpoint um, damage in her muscles of her rear flippers. And we weren't able to see this with x-rays. We weren't able to see it with ultrasound, the other tools that we had available. And But what we think happened is that um, she had some kind of blunt force trauma to her rear flippers and that caused the muscle to die off and um, that then caused an infection to spread throughout her body and her bloodstream and it was this bacterium called carinibacterium and that um, I remember after we found that we I was talking with a, a human infectious disease specialist and she had she said oh carinibacterium oh my gosh in humans that causes pneumonia and kidney infections and and liver infections and skin disease and every single symptom that she had and (laughs) that is also it that is also seen in human patients with these infections and so we were so lucky that we were able to kind of beat the clock because she was so sick and we were able to you know to to figure out what was going on and give her the the correct treatment and she and she pulled through it um, and, and it was, it was so amazing to be able to release her back into the wild. And, and then, 
um, you know, to have the team on Kauai be able to to monitor her um, and and confirm that you know she's still in, in she's still thriving out there. Um, for me, that that case really sticks out in my mind because it was so apparent that conservation and medicine in general really takes a village. And again, it's the it's that support system, right? Like I myself as a veterinarian treating her was not going to be able to figure out what was going on by myself. And yeah, so it takes, yeah, it takes talking to experts from all kinds of different fields and for everybody doing their part, monitoring her and treating her and, you know, throwing ideas out and um, all of that to be with that one goal to save this animal and, and then to see the impact because when, because saving her not not only saved her life, which of course is you know is is a huge goal, but also because she was a female that would then hopefully will go on to to reproduce, it would then impact all of the pups that she'll have in the future that that will then go to impact a species that's endangered. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. huge. That's really yeah. huge. <laughs> yeah. So she she had a big impact on me. Yeah, I can imagine. She's got a big impact on me and I didn't even meet her. <laughs> I know, right? You love her now. <laughs> I know, she's my favorite. She's my, my, <laughs> she's my favorite seal. Uh, I did work at an aquarium and there's two seals there that really have my heart, but she's top three for sure. Oh, that's good. I won't tell. I won't tell. <laughs> um, before we head off, there um, there's a lot of little girls that I know want to be large animal vets or marine mammal vets. Specifically, there's a very special little girl in my life. Her name is Ava. And she told me that she wanted to be a large animal marine vet. If she was listening to this, what would you tell her about how to become one? Well, hi, Ava. I know that you're listening to this because (laughs) obviously you're very special to Jill. (laughs) And I think that the, the advice that I would give is is follow, is try everything that you can. Try, even if it's something that you think you're not going to like, or you think takes you away from what that ultimate goal is, give it a try. And because if nothing else, it can help you to confirm, oh, that's not for me, or or this is for me. But it might surprise you in actually taking you farther towards your ultimate goal, um, in, in doing exactly what you want to do. And, and, you know, I think I always hear, um, I hear a lot of feedback from, from folks that say, oh my gosh, it's, it's such a competitive field. It's such a small field. Um, there's no way that you're going to get a job. And, you know, I mean, like someone has to get a job, right. And so it might as well be you. And, (laughs) and, uh, and so I think that, I I think that not only um, trying a whole bunch of different things um, to to see how you like them and see how they impact you, but I think also being okay with failing forward. And by that, I mean that there are, uh, there are going to definitely be times where you, you outright fail or you realize, gosh, this isn't, exactly what I wanted to do, or this doesn't align with my other priority to maybe 
have a family or to um, want better job security or to actually want to be like a professional dancer. And that's okay to realize those things after you're halfway down the path um, yeah. because that can help tailor it too. And, um, and so I think being just being open to um, where life takes you is, will, will hopefully take you exactly where you're supposed to go. When Ava told me she wanted to be a large Marine vet, I told her it was very competitive and that there were no, like, there might not be a lot of jobs in it, but that doesn't mean she should stop and that she should definitely keep going. So she's going to be so excited to hear from you and hear that she <laughs> should keep going and at least try it out. That's awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Claire. It was amazing having you on. And I've learned so much just in these 50 minutes. I'm amazed. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I mean, you're an excellent podcast host. And, oh uh, and it's, clear that you. you're, <laughs> it's clear that your passion you know, shines through. And, and it's so awesome that you're, you're highlighting um, all of these women that, that are really um, lucky to be, to be doing what they love, um, helping the ocean. And, and it's cool to, to be a part of that. Thank you so much. That means a lot coming from you. Wow. <laughs> if there's anywhere some people can follow along with you or your new company or anything like that, would you like to share it here? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I am, uh, I'm most active on, uh, on social media with, uh, with Twitter um, and with Instagram Um uh, following Claire Simeone. Um, I have my, my own website, clairesimeone.com that then talks about, um, uh, talks about my company, Sea Change Health. And, um, and, you know, I, I love, uh, talking with, with groups. I love, um, speaking with people. I was doing a lot of that in person. And now as, as we're all shifting to more of a virtual world, it's something that, you know, if, if people are thinking, um, uh, about a way that, that I could be helpful. I'd love for people to, to reach out to me um, through any one of those means. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. Make sure to follow Claire on all her social media, and I highly encourage you to take 10 minutes right now and go watch her TED Talk. It really changed my perspective and taught me a lot of new things. As always, you can follow along with Water Women on all social media we're on instagram and facebook at water women podcast and on twitter at water women pod you can also check out our website at waterwomenpodcast.ca or send us an email at waterwomenpodcast at gmail.com and until next week stay salty